This is Geek 4, a podcast about fans, fandom, and fan culture. I'm Dr. Michael Boyce. Everyone likes something, but what are you a geek for? Jamie Howison is the founding priest of St. Benedict's Table, an Anglican community in Winnipeg where he has been serving since 2004. He's a former member of the Primates Theological Commission of the Anglican Church of Canada. He's also been a short-term resident scholar at the Collegeville Institute and was named a Burke Library Scholar-in-Residence at New York's Union Theological Seminary. His book, God's Mind in That Music, Theological Explorations of the Music of John Coltrane, was published in 2012. And no less an authority than Cornell West remarked, his understanding and love of Coltrane are amazing. Jamie, welcome to Geek 4. Well, it's good to be here. Jazz is rarely someone's starting point on their, on their musical journey. So can you talk to me about how you got into jazz and like how you kind of came to that type of music? Sure. Well, and let me preface that by saying that ever since I discovered pop music in the summer of 1971, <laughs> music has been uh, a kind of a soundtrack for my life, not not background, but but soundtrack. One of the ways in which I make sense of the world. And that summer, my uh, my parents had upgraded their radio from this old Bakelite tube radio that took like thirty seconds to warm up, and they bought themselves a Sony with short wave, so my dad could try to get the BBC, <laughs> and I inherited at the grand old age of ten the old tube radio and uh, and I would sit at night had it beside my uh, bunk bed at the lake and I would tune between CKRC and CFRW which were the two top 40 pop stations and I absolutely fell in love with it um, the the song that set my little 10 year old heart <laughs> ablaze was signs by the five man electrical band which was kind of protesty rights music but rights for hippies <laughs> and uh, and I just oh I was just invigorated and I began to pursue music from there I got Neil Young's Harvest for a birthday or a Christmas gift in grade six nobody in grade six was listening to Neil, <laughs> Neil Young's Harvest but I and so that launched it and all the way through high school and university and well beyond, uh, music became just a way in which I made sense of the world. But I remember somebody saying to me, a friend of mine saying to me in high school, when I was uh, uh, a geek for <laughs> art rock, for Jethro Tull and the Peter Gabriel era Genesis and those Yes albums with sprawling 40-minute songs, um, he said to me, you know, I understand that when rock fans grow up, they get, they become jazz fans. It's like, well, I don't know <laughs> about that. But it was within a year or two that I began to explore a little bit to the uh, electric jazz rock of the day. Miles Davis is in a silent way. Mm -hmm. And Billy Cobham, Spectrum... Uh, this the fusion music, and mm -hmm. I like that. Mm -hmm. Brand X, really like that. Um, but more 
conventional acoustic-based jazz, you know, I, I didn't get it. And then, 1995 or six, um, somebody passed along Miles Davis's "Kind of Blue" to me. Uh... Now I was older, and my capacity for a breadth of music had definitely increased. Um, but that that was the gateway drug. I mean, man, oh man, I loved and love that album. So much going on in it, sonically and rhythmically, and it just, it's such a listenable record. And I, I was hooked. I mean, I had the first, that, that was the first syringe full of the drug. <laughs> A fitting analogy uh, for these Yeah, guys. for the times. Yeah. That may be perfect album. Uh, I, I don't know how many of those actually exist, but that may be a perfect album. Like, front front to back. Yes. Brilliant and so listenable. Yep. And recorded live off the floor in two days. Yeah. Yeah. Which was the way. So from there, then, I began to kind of explore a little further back into the 50s stuff that Davis was doing, a little further into the 60s, um, less enamored by the, by the fusion stuff. But what else was going on? And then who else was on that record? Well, John Coltrane and Bill Evans uh -huh. and Cannibal Adderley. So what else are they doing? And uh, this, that's when I discovered Coltrane. Mm. And again, the stuff from a little earlier in the 50s, the stuff from a little later, I tried to love Supreme, didn't get it. It seemed just too out, too spacey, too weird. So I, I kind of backed off and went for the more conventional quartet, quintet kind of stuff. But the appetite was whetted. Mm. And Coltrane is one of those figures who is just on so many records. Like he's yep. part of the original Miles Davis quintet. He's, he was playing with Thelonious Monk. Yeah. He, like, he really, for his short life, his fingerprints are all over that early early jazz stuff. Oh, yeah. Yep, absolutely. And and Love Supreme is out there, but it's not nearly as out there as some of the other stuff. Well, no, I mean, Love Supreme now, to my ear, sounds so conventional because after that, everything he does is is further out and further out and further out. For the just for the next few years before he dies in uh, 1967, at the age of 40. What you're describing to me is not is is not unfamiliar. Uh, is not an unfamiliar story for people who love jazz. Like jazz almost requires its fans to put in the work to follow those yep. those connections. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I think it's partly developing a, developing a capacity. To, to hear beyond the kinds of sounds that maybe we were conventionally formed in listening to to radio and watching much music or whatever you know whatever whatever vintage shaped you um, there's a very particular way to hear once you begin to be able to hear and integrate and digest a thing like kind of blue then then you begin to expand that capacity by following some of these other players and what they're doing. And, and I, I think capacity is the right word. Talk to Don Selliers about this in the context. He wrote the foreword to my book. Mm -hmm. Don was a theologian of music who, uh, who taught um, 
at Emory for many, many years. And he, he agreed. He talked about having to, to develop your ears to hear beyond the mm. familiar. And I, th- I think that's a big part of it. Mm. Mm. Can you give us a, a brief overview of Coltrane's life? It is, it is short, yep. um, tragically short compared to some of his contemporaries. What's his background? Where is he coming from? He comes from the South. His, uh, both of his grandfathers were African Methodist Episcopal Zion preachers. And his, uh, his maternal grandfather was, was a major figure in, in, uh, in North Carolina, in the church there, kind of almost akin to a bishop, had regional oversight. And uh, it was a huge influence. The family his mom and dad, and, and he moved in to his grandfather's home when he was quite young, um, in the early 30s, depression time, and so lived in this bigger household with his grandparents and an aunt. Um, he was soaked in the church, soaked in the sounds of the church, but he also would have been soaked in a, in a, a, a culture and community where he would have heard blues the sounds are just in the air when he's um, quite young about 10 years old his father dies and then his grandfather dies and uh, between those two there's a pretty devastating Mm. and um, so he was raised in this household by his mom and an aunt and it's then that he first picks up a musical instrument the local church, his, his AMEZ church, has a band, and, and he's taught how to play. And, and one of the, the theories is that he, he sort of loses himself in, in music as a way to cope with grief. Winds up very, really after the Second World War is over, but he's, he's drafted and serves a, a year or so in the American military, playing in the band. That's where he first begins to play in a jazz quartet, quintet, I can't remember, with other guys from this band. I've got recordings of it. It's not very sophisticated. <laughs> like, he wasn't a prodigy. Um, but he, he comes out of that and he goes back. His mom has now relocated to Philadelphia from the south. And he goes to live with his mom coming out of the army. And he uses his veterans' um, benefits to study music. Mm. In Philadelphia and he begins to gig and pretty quickly he's he's able to get some pretty pretty high-end gigs um, among other things he's playing with Dizzy Gillespie's big band around 1950 he is getting better and better and better and more and more impressive but he's also at that point in the early 50s falling for one of the great lies of the jazz culture of that day which is the key to Charlie Parker's genius was his heroin. And so Coltrane begins to drink heavily and begins shooting up. And pretty soon he's got twin addictions. He's able to, to still survive, to cope, joins the Miles Davis Quintet, records those landmark records with them, gets married, limping along though with these addictions, and it's when he starts to nod off on stage that Miles Davis, who was not a patient man, <laughs> fired him. And uh, he went 
they were living in New York at the time, and they moved back to Philadelphia, back to his mother's house, and he made the decision, I've got to, I've got to get sober, I've got to get straight. No AA, no treatment center, no nothing. Basically just holes up at his mother's place and... Cold turkey. Say, yeah, cold turkey and keep the dealers away. Which is how Davis himself kicked the yeah. habit. Like, I, I, it always strikes me that Davis um, could have, should have been more compassionate. <laughs> and he just wasn't. Well, you know what? Maybe, maybe being a bit of a hard ass, yeah. firing him was exactly what he needed. Sure. And, and so he, he does it. And it's actually the great first spiritual awakening mm-hmm. that will seven years later produce a love supreme. And pretty soon he's, he's picked up by Thelonious Monk, and then he gets invited back to Davis's band. Which is probably the ultimate compliment. Yeah. Um, welcoming him back into the fold. Huge. Y- you raise um, the issue of, of the theological or the, the spiritual awakening, and your book is all about theological. There's this really interesting theological element, spiritual element to Coltrane's music, mm-hmm. um, both in his life and after his life. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> why don't you could speak a little bit about that? Like he, his work continues to wrestle with these themes. Yeah. In fact, from A Love Supreme on, he said very explicitly that all of his music was prayer. Mm. A Love Supreme is the great um, uh, open statement of that because the liner notes and the poem that he wrote, that he plays uh, note by note on his sax for the closing movement of a love supreme, I mean, it is, it's prayer. Um, again, everything after that, he said, was prayer, no matter how out it sounded. My take on it is that he had the church in his bones, um, he uses so often he he draws on the language that he would have learned growing up and being formed in the church to name pieces or to shape pieces he's also though a quintessential 1960s kind of seeker he's interested (laughs) in numerology he's interested in astrology he's interested in einstein's theory of relativity and avant-garde music theory and ultimately Eastern thought, but even when he's exploring Eastern thought, these titles from his church background and a sense of the oneness of God never leaves him. He, um, so it's 60, if 64 is a love supreme and he dies in 67, that's a short period. A love supreme is very specifically coming out of the faith formation of his childhood. It's, I mean, the fingerprints of the church are all over that record. But between then and his death in 67, he records Ulm, one of the most atrocious records he ever (laughs) recorded, I'd have to say. Um, But he's he's exploring deeply Mm. Eastern spirituality and specifically Hinduism. And his wife, second wife, Alice Coltrane, then really gets deeper into that after his death and begins to understand herself actually as a channel mm. for um, for his work continuing in the world. And at the same time, there's this group in San Francisco in the early 70s that latches on to his music, and particularly A Love Supreme, 
as a demonstration of his either divinity at first or, or latterly, his sainthood. So the St. John Coltrane African Orthodox Church, which still exists, uh, uses his music liturgically and understands him to be a saint in communication with them. Wow. I'm not sure what he would have thought about that. <laughs> And I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm, actually, I'm quite sure what his grandfathers both would have thought I, Yeah, I'm pretty sure I can imagine what they would say. I've heard you talk about the piece Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Yep. Um, first, can you describe what that song is like? Sure. Because I'm assuming <laughs> many, of our, many of my listeners have never heard it before. So this is from the Meditations record. Which is, uh, like a love supreme, is a full uh, uh, piece, it, as a piece, as a whole, the album is mm-hmm. a piece with five parts. And the first part is the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Now, the year that I discovered that record, I was, um, I had really come to love and appreciate a love supreme. And I had come across it. Uh, at, the, at a used record store, and it was this CD, Meditations, The Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost is the first piece, and, and the, the titles, the various other pieces are all very much meditative, and uh-huh. I'm thinking, oh, this is the other one going to be like a love spring. <laughs> and uh, it was Easter Monday um, in about 2000, 2008. And uh, I was taking a couple days retreat, but just retreating on my own at the house. I was on my own and going to sit by the wood stove and read books and listen to music and for a couple days. <laughs> and I saved this record for that day. And uh, I got myself already lined it up and I had the remote to turn on the CD player. Sat on the couch, pressed play, and this brutal cacophony of music <laughs> explodes into the room and I no, without without a word of a lie I thought I've got a bum copy and I leapt up <laughs> to turn it off to see what was going wrong with my CD player or what but nope actually that's what it's supposed to sound like okay <laughs> it's about nine minutes long it is a free piece so the musicians would have been given a kind of a structure and an outline. This is what we're going to do. But all four of them, well, five in that record, because they're joined by um, uh, 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 Pharaoh Saunders, another mm-hmm. sax player. They're, they're sort of basically told, this is the shape. One, two, three, play. And it's... So, okay, this is what it is. And I, and I, I laid back down on the couch. And I woke up as the whole 40-minute record was ending. And it was beautiful by that point. But somehow the intensity of that opening nine or ten minutes of that Trinitarian piece had actually made me go to sleep. Wow. Um, when I later began to really listen and try to sort out what's going on, I began to hear in the midst of this chaos of energy and turmoil that he was playing on his horn, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, 
Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And, and it, he would punctuate every once in a while with that run of notes. And it was the still point in the midst of the energy. So it's the Trinity as swirling, um, untamable energy, yet anchored. I love it now. It, it is a piece that requires work. It, it requires does. you to have done your work on Love Supreme, at least. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is not anything that the uninitiated will make sense of. It, nope. is, it is a really hard record. It is. If you were, if somebody was interested in, in getting into jazz, um, you know, like, like your friend said, uh, wanting to mature their musical tastes um, from, from pop music, where would you recommend they start? I think the place to go is to the uh, four or five great records that were all recorded pretty much the same season as Kind of Blue. So it was Davis's Kind of Blue, Coltrane's Giant Steps, oh. Dave Brubeck's Take Five, um, Monk's, or uh, Mingus's, Charlie Mingus's uh-huh. 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 and then to push the edges, Ornette Coleman's The Shape of Jazz to Come. They're all recorded within about three months. Wow. There's something in the air or the water <laughs> that just... They're ready to go. My goodness. Yeah. And then, and then as somebody looking to become a little bit more conversant in Coltrane's free jazz era, Love Supreme, Meditations, how would you recommend getting into Meditations? Well, I think by way of, of a Love Supreme first, which is not free and out. It's just not conventionally structured, mm-hmm. but it's extremely listenable. That's probably the way to go. That's a sort of a palette enhancer. <laughs> um, there is an alternate recording of meditations called First Meditations that replaces the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost with another far more conventional piece. That's a really nice record. And that's a way into to kind of what he's doing. At some point, though, if, if any, somebody's interested in exploring that, the, the stuff, the real out free stuff like uh-huh. Ascension, which is a 40 minute jam with a whole host of musicians, <laughs> it is structured, but it takes a while to hear the structure. Uh-huh. Like, really, there's nothing to fully prepare you. It's just jump in and. Well, thank you so much for talking about, about Coltrane. Are you up for some fast back and forth questions? Oh, absolutely. All right. <laughs> They can be about jazz, they can be about music, they can be about anything. What is the first thing, Jamie Howison, you remember being a big fan for? Batman. Batman. I have got, this is <laughs> totally geeky, I still have my complete set of Batman trading cards from about 1967. Ooh, that, <laughs> that is impressive. Very geeky, timed at the same time as the, the TV show, but... More uh, it, after the style of the comic book of that era, which was not nearly as dark as it became. No, no, no. It, it got so dark in the 1980s. Yeah. Well, this might affect the next answer. What is the geekiest thing you own? Well, it could be. It would be those trading cards. But, <laughs> I don't know. I'm seeing a few other things. <laughs> but in the, yeah. It, probably in, the, uh, in, the, in the, the Coltrane theme, right behind you on the bookshelf is a great big volume called the John Coltrane Reference, oh. which is about the size of a phone book, if people remember what a phone book is. <laughs> and what that book has is a 
it's a complete listing of everything recording he ever appeared on and every wow. live date Ooh. that he ever did as a sideman or as much as they could. It's a total compendium of all of, of, of his work recorded in live. And there's a website that, that updates it still. The guys that put it together so are they, still updating. They must be finding new things. Yeah. I mean, he was incredibly prolific. Yeah playing with everybody yeah well um, since it was 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 uh released there's been two new two further coltrane records discovered one the soundtrack for that obscure quebecois film uh-huh. and the other the uh, i want to say no direction home but that's not what it's called but <laughs> but it was from about three or four years ago okay that's that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> that's pretty geeky. That's pretty eh? geeky. I like it. Uh, I like good reference. Good geeky reference stuff it appeals to me. Um, besides a John Coltrane album, what album would you say you have played the most in your life? Oh, most of my life. Um, probably Bruce Coburn's Humans. I'm I I still I mean I got lots of Coburn. And- Lots of time for what he does and continues to do. What's something that you're a fan of that would surprise people? Well, if I stay in the music genre, I'm I'm a big, got a huge fascination with uh, Brian Wilson and the great Beach Boys material that he was a part of producing and some of the stuff that came after. There's a Beach Boys record that I have on vinyl, Surf's Up, which is one of the darkest. Mm. It's not like Surf's Up, let's get our surfboards. It's more like <laughs> Surf's Up, we're done. Um, but people wouldn't typically think of me as a Beach Boys guy. No, no. <laughs> Where can people find you on social media? Uh, you know, I'm not a huge social media guy. I, I do, I am a Facebook uh-huh. person, but I don't. Well, there's there is actually a God's Mind in that music designated page, but it's poorly maintained. I'm just on Facebook. Okay. And there's also a JamieHowison.ca website that's still under construction, but has been put up, and it's in anticipation of a book coming out, hopefully before the end of the year. And the title of that book? The title of that book is A Kind of Solitude, mm-hmm. subtitled. How pacing the cage with an icon and the book of common prayer restored my soul. I look forward to reading it. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's fun. Thank you for joining me on Geek 4. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Geek4Pod or me on Twitter at MWBoyce. If you listen on Apple Podcast, click the subscribe button and consider leaving a five-star review. Be sure to join us next time when we learn what someone else is a geek for.